Pain is not the same throughout time. There are attitudes that enable man to become detached from pain and control it as an absolute master. This detachment emerges wherever man is able to treat the body as an object. Of course, this presupposes a command sender, which regards the body as a distant outpost that can be deployed and sacrificed in battle. Hence, for real warriors, the body is not important, and it is worth taking a risk in order to negate the enemy. Henceforth, for real warriors and ascetic priests, all measures are designed to master pain, not to avoid it. The heroic and religious world presents an entirely different relation to pain than does the modern world of sensitivity. However, in the modern world, pain must be marginalized and life sheltered from it. We never see cows slaughtered, but we eat hamburgers all the time. How many chickens has the most devoted progressive devoured? Now how many have they seen slaughtered? For the heroic and religious man, the point of the world is to constantly organize life so that you are always armed against pain. Indeed, discipline means nothing other than this. Whether it is of the priestly ascetic kind directed towards abnegation, or of the warlike heroic kind directed towards hardening oneself like steel. In both cases, it is a matter of maintaining complete control over life so that at any hour of the day your life can serve a higher calling. The central question concerning the rank of present values can be answered by determining to what extent the body can be treated as an object. The secret of the modern world is that it corresponds to a world in which the body, the self, the individual, the I, the tick-tock star, the pampered Hollywood starlet is itself the highest value. This observation explains why the modern world relates to pain as a power to be avoided at all cost, because here pain confronts the body, not as an outpost, but as the main force and essential core of life. There are several great and unalterable dimensions that show a man's stature. Pain is one of them. Pain as a measure of man is unalterable, but what can be altered is the way he confronts pain. Man's relation to pain changes with every significant shift in fundamental belief. As one Christian philosopher said, you can't have a change in culture without a change in religion. Culture is religion externalized, and so it is with man's relation to pain. Pain is one of the keys to unlock man's innermost being as well as the world. Whenever one approaches the points where man proves himself to be equal or superior to pain, one gains access to the sources of his power and the secret hidden behind his dominion. Tell me your relation to pain, and I will tell you who you are. Edited quote from On Pain by Ernst Younger. For he is Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today we're dive-bombing right back into the Battle of Berlin. Now we've got a lot to cover, so I want to jump right into the battle, but first I need to thank Jim from Parts Unknown, Randy from Joplin, Missouri, and Scott and his wife Claire from The Villages, Florida. Scott and Claire like to listen to the show when they drive to the beach, and they especially enjoy the longer shows they finish listening to on the beach because of the funny looks they get from people around them as they listen to me recount some of the most horrific scenes of human history. Thanks for listening, guys. Crack open a cold one for me. All right, I need to remind you this is part seven of an ongoing definitive history of the Battle of Berlin. You can find the first shows and the episodes preceding this one, but now the Battle of Berlin. At 6 o'clock in the morning, the remaining SS Nordland units were ordered to counterattack the Soviets in Nukoln, a suburb south of Berlin. Captain Funay was one of the men involved in this counterstroke. This is how he describes his war on April 26th. Quote, Finally, the order to attack arrives. The infantry advance well spaced out, followed by the tanks. The Reds fail to react at first, and then their old Maxim machine guns open up on us, barking and spewing death. 
Then the anti-tank guns joined the chorus of death, hoarse and bass-filled, behind the shrill soprano sounds of the zipping machine-gun bullets. Our men advance as if they are on exercise, bounding from door to door along the walls, jumping over the ruins, dodging the red snipers, firing from above. Still, a few of us fall in the advance. The tanks behind us spit fire and flames. The Russian infantry only reveal themselves as isolated snipers and leave the heavy cannon and machine-guns to hose up us down. Our men keep pressing forward, flesh against spinning brass. Then we suffer a severe blow. A reserve section is about to negotiate a crossroads and they are foolishly bunched together. That's when a salvo of anti-tank gun shells hit the street corner with terrible precision, riddling the unfortunate men, smashing them to the pavement and embedding their tender bodies into their surrounding walls, which makes their broken form strangely resemble surreal American Looney Tunes cartoons. I counted 15 bodies scattered on the roadway, flopping and boiling like an egg in a too-hot frying pan. Meanwhile, the advance continues. It was now necessary to clear building after building with grenades and bayonets. All along the streets, one could see men reappear as they moved in leaps, like hind-leg-kicking rabbits fleeing predators. We now formed a salient within the Russian lines, and I had to keep reducing the number of men at the head in order to reinforce the flanks. The town hall became the center of our defense. We received several hundred Hitler youth as reinforcements. These teens, aged between 14 and 16 years old, charged with a magnificent spirit, blind and deaf to danger, uncaringly throwing themselves at the enemy, strong in their youthful inexperience. They fought like old soldiers. They go ahead with their Panzerfaust, with rifles often taller than themselves, unconcerned about their losses, however numerous. Since morning, the Reds have suffered heavy losses. We have destroyed about 30 tanks, while Russian dead litter the ground. Several Soviet artillery guns have been knocked out. The fighting continues without ceasing. In the afternoon, things quieted down. That's when the earth suddenly seemed to explode all around us, as if the floor you're standing on suddenly erupted in a geyser of earth. It was the enemy's artillery sweeping the streets all around our men. I myself was wounded in my left foot. I was hobbling and screaming curse words, using a thick stick to walk, crippled and fighting on anyway. The Russians came on, and we fought house to house, throwing grenades from door to door and window to window. The Reds who had attacked us in the rear were wiped out. Then the Reds came on again in a frontal assault. Our men and the Hitler youth fought like devils, clearing the area, sometimes fighting hand to hand, stabbing the enemy with pointed bayonets. The blood would seep through the enemy's clothes. Pitcher and an up waitress delivering wine to a white linen covered table. Clumsily, she spills the Cabernet Sauvignon. The linen greedily devours the wine and sends it spreading in a circular pattern, ebbing out from the epicenter of the spill, the red wine coursing through the fibers of the cloth, forming a damp crimson cloud across the tabletop. In just the same way, the fingering bayonets formed pools of blood blotting across the tawny overcoats of the red enemy. Most of the fighting took place inside blocks of attached buildings, but now the Russian T-34 tanks joined in the fight. Our Panzerfaust destroyed two, but the others continued on their way, hosing the area in machine gun fire. That's when one of our German Panzers appeared. It lowered its long 88mm barrel, and then there was a violent explosion in flames and smoke surged out of the muzzle brake of the 88mm gun, which immobilized the lead T-34 tank. The crew attempted to bail out, but our men mowed them down like bowling pins. As the afternoon progressed, our situation became untenable. The Russians were working their way around our position. Meanwhile, we continued to fight on. One sergeant named Cap was hosing down anything that moved in front of him with 1,200 rounds a minute. The shell mounts piled up like giant ants' nests all around him. From time to time, Cap made a rapid change of position and continued to harass the assailants. For five hours, we were completely alone on the front line. At 1900 hours, runners reported that Soviet tanks were already behind our position. There were only two streets left to withdraw along. Now we really did have to withdraw. Then we set up another defensive position and waited through the night to do it all over again. End quote. A few miles away, at the same time, Siegfried Knapp, an officer on General Viedling's staff, was sent to a key flak tower. This is what he saw, quote, My life during the last eight days of the defense of Berlin was just like combat, constant crises. When I could sleep two hours in a row, I was lucky. 
In the morning of April 26, I was ordered to a bunker at the Berlin Zoo in order to help establish our new headquarters there. When we left our headquarters, we had to be careful because the area behind our building was under constant fire. As we drove through the city, the earth trembled with each exploding artillery shell, and there were artillery shells constantly going off all day and night. A huge volcano of earth and debris erupted from the ground with each explosion. It looked as if the earth had just suddenly regurgitated. The noise was deafening and the heaving of the earth was totally unsettling. A sliver of shrapnel from an exploding shell punctured one of my vehicle's tires. Parts of Berlin were a virtual junkyard of disabled military equipment and the smell of death permeated everything. In addition to human corpses, many of the animals from the zoo had escaped and been killed, lending their distinct rotting odor to the fetid stench." End quote. Into this butcher shop masquerading under the name of Berlin, Harry Glazer, a Latvian Jew and volunteer in the Soviet Red Army, was riding in the back of a truck. Harry placed his machine gun on the hood, looking for any signs of trouble. One moment he was cruising along without any problems, the next moment the back of the truck was exploding, and Harry was thrown to the battered concrete, men screaming all around him as his platoon began to take heavy small arms fire. Harry and his squad took cover in the nearest building they could find as a Russian tank came up in support and began to simply deconstruct the building from which the rifle fire had come. The tank fired 12 shots into the building. Each shot reverberated the ground and brought huge chunks of the building's facade cascading down into the street with the rivering force of a waterfall in the Smoky Mountains. After 12 shots from the tank's cannon, Harry and his squad were sent into the building. They found one dead German and two more wounded. One of the wounded was a woman in a Luftwaffe uniform. Even while bleeding, she looked fanatical, much more so than the men. Meanwhile, one SS trooper was sheltering in a sandy 18-inch hole when all hell broke loose around him. He later described the scene like this, quote, The sound of the Russian cannon, so deafening that I can see the explosions of shells without distinguishing the sound. Suddenly I'm half covered in earth, splattered from an explosion near my hole. Very close to me I hear a rattle, then muffled cries, Help! Mom! Mom, no! I don't want to die! Mom! Then nothing. It's not the first time I've heard this. I've heard it in innumerable languages, Russian, German, French. One time I think I heard it in Swedish or Norwegian or something. Something deep within us calls to our families when we face death and hardship. That was one element of common humanity I did see in that fighting. It's still so shocking to see men beg for their mothers like that. Anyway, soon after the initial barrage, I didn't hear any more screams. I lift my head out of my hole to take a look at the surroundings. There's nothing to see, only earth moved and splattered everywhere you look. A splash of bullets knocks my head down in a hurry, I can tell you. We haven't slept since the night of the 23rd to the 24th at 2 o'clock in the morning, which makes 56 or 57 hours that we haven't slept. And despite the bombardment, I fell asleep in the middle of it. Can you believe that? I'm awakened by a comrade shaking me. We launched the counterattack. Of course, what else do we do? We progress for a moment, awkwardly running through the terrain, which is intersected with long and wide trenches and mounds of earth thrown up in completely random order. I hear a whiz pop. We're being shot at. That's how you can tell. A swarm of grenades buzz down on us like exploding headstones. The Russians use grenade launchers a lot, at least where I was. As we run, we shoot. We shoot and run. Having no section command, I advance as an individual fighter, crawling, jumping, shooting at anything that moves in front of me. Our counterattack does seem to be working. I see Russians running away everywhere. But after a few minutes, we are pinned to the ground by a deluge of artillery. As our own artillery is practically non-existent, the counterattack we just launched stalls. That's always how it went at that battle. All our infantry counterattacks, even in a state of blatant numerical inferiority, make the Russians run. But in the minutes that follow, the results of all our efforts are reduced to zero by artillery, aviation, and tanks. They have plenty of those, far more than we can ever destroy. And we don't have anything except wounded men and iron crosses. We got plenty of those, buddy. Whatever Adolf Hitler may say... We have proof that the moral value of combatants alone cannot counterbalance the overwhelming material superiority of our opponents, end quote. Here, in blatant language, is the truth of modern warfare. Spirit is not enough. At the end of World War II, the Japanese were finally forced to accept this same truth, and in the end, even the most hardened SS veterans were forced to the same dismal conclusion. Spirit and lust for battle can make a difference on the battlefield, Lieutenant Dave Grossman strongly implies as much in his great book on killing. 
But as Wesley Clark noted in his American Military History, you cannot afford for the enemy to have an overwhelming technological superiority over you. Now, approximately seven miles away, 17-year-old Helmut Altner and his 20 comrades were grouped in two-man units. Each two-man unit was assigned to an entire block of the outer suburbs of northwest Berlin. Helmut Street was middle-class townhomes complete with tidy gardens, resembling a well-to-do British city street. Helmut was alone with a major, literally one of only two men guarding an entire city block of a Berlin street. His job was to delay the Russian advance. It actually was easy as long as there weren't too many Russians. Helmut explains like this, quote, The gardens lie peaceful in the sunlight, as if there was no war at all, as if the killing might not break out again at any moment. There are figures slinking close to the bushes outside, sprinting from bush to bush like cats. I call down to the major, manning the floor of the townhome below me. Shoot! He calls back and comes up the stairs. I take aim calmly as if I'm on the shooting range. It's so easy. A figure comes slowly into my sights and then becomes hazy. I've lost him. I stop and I take a few deep breaths until I've calmed down again. Nobody seems to have noticed anything, either from the enemy side or from our side. I take aim again. Something's moving behind the summer house across the street. A uniform appears in my quivering sights. My gun barrel follows it. I squeeze the trigger. The shot whips off with a bang, tearing through the peaceful silence. I squeeze again and again, the sound thundering in the narrow stairwell. Suddenly it's quiet. The roaring in my ears is even louder, but there's no one to be seen. The gardens look like they've been swept clean. Only the rifle shot slamming against the walls of the house I'm in give it away that there is a life out there. I go up another floor in the building. The gardens are now far below me. There are fields in the distance and dark spots moving forward along the street and getting bigger. Tanks. They're still a long way off. Shots slam against the walls and whistle through the trees and summer houses below me. Occasionally, one of the figures stops, staggers, and then lies still like a dark stain in the gardens. But there is also the occasional cry from the apartment blocks from our defenders. The enemy fire is becoming more accurate, striking the windows and stairwell, and the glass window next to me splinters. We are returning fire almost blindly into the gardens, unable to see any of the enemy. I empty magazine after magazine, and the breech of my rifle seems to be glowing. Shots are flying all around me, hitting the walls. Now it's getting harder to defend the Reich. We move to another townhome, and I sit with the Major on the beds and look out of the window. He gets himself a leather armchair and pulls it up to the other window. The clatter of tank tracks comes suddenly from a nearby street. Dull gunfire and explosions sound among the buildings. Rifle fire has also started up again, but only sporadically. A shot whistles close past my head as if it was trying to burn me. Suddenly I drop my rifle and look outside. A pitcher that had been hanging on the wall behind me has been smashed, its glass broken. That could have been my head, I think to myself. Now the Major and I are more careful. Most of the front doors of the buildings opposite are now closed, including mine, indicating that the enemy is in those apartments. The Russians and the gateway to hell are literally across the street from me. I step outside to see if I can locate the enemy. Shells explode in the gardens, the gunfire coming from quite close, splintering the light blue siding of the townhome next to me. I dive into the building, dragging a child who wandered outside with me. I go to the front door, open it, and look out at the street. Some of the comrades are standing in the other doorways, firing at the entrance to a side street where Russians are running into the buildings. The other German troops are firing at the buildings opposite us, keeping the enemy's heads down. Suddenly a tank rolls into the street and stops at the crossroads. A bright flash comes from its barrel, the din sounding like an artillery barrage. The shell explodes, sending thick smoke, rubble, and flesh-tearing debris flying around and taking our breath away. Figures run across the street from the corner and vanish. Then the tank turns and rolls along the street, disappearing behind our row of buildings. I go back inside, closing the front door again, the Major sitting quietly at the window, looking out. I go up and look at him. At once I can see that he's dead. There's a small wound in his head, dripping blood and a slimy white mush like creamed corn. His weapon is still lying across his knees. His death suddenly hits me like an epiphany, as if an angel had appeared to me, and it makes me want to scream out loud. This is not my first dead man, but there is nothing worse than seeing one looking as if he were still alive. It's such a small wound, too, that killed him. 
The curtains flutter wildly. I am suddenly terrified and run out of the room, slamming the door behind me. The second lieutenant materializes out of the building next door and says, Withdraw in five minutes! Back to the next row of buildings and regroup there! I stay by the back door and wait. Civilians are running out of the adjacent buildings and disappearing between the trees, some soldiers among them. Then, after a little while, I do not see any more. Am I alone? I better get the hell out of there. I turn and run to the next street. Now the Third Reich is one block smaller. My foot hits something as I run and I stumble. A dead man was lying in front of me and I had nearly fallen over him. There's a fresh hole in the ground next to him. He's been killed by splinters in his head and body and is lying on his back staring into the sun. I tried to get his paybook from him, but the dead man was heavy and his tunic was full of blood, so it was difficult. I rolled him over, my fingers wet with running crimson blood, looking through his pockets for his papers and removing the wallet from his tunic. The dead man rolls back, blood spurting from his mouth and spewing from his nose. I'm suddenly filled with an irrational fear that he will wake up and call me a thief for stealing his paybook. I rush away from him, not daring to look back and make my way to the new position. Then suddenly firing breaks out again. Russians are running forward through the gardens from tree to tree and firing breaks out from all the windows in the gardens. Then suddenly a tank track rattles on the street and an engine roars. Unnoticed by us, a tank is pushed forward close along the gardens. The engine is switched off. It is stopped. The shooting has eased off. Everyone is staring at it. As if bewitched by the tank, the gun muzzle points threatening at us. Then a tongue of fire spurts from the barrel and the shell strikes with a roar. A hail of steel, masonry and iron showers over us. Walls crack and collapse. A cloud of lung-clogging dust drifts slowly and sluggishly over the gardens. We sit at the windows of a townhome and look out. The tank is still standing motionless on the street. We shoot into the trees and bushes. Then the tank moves forward again with rattling tracks and roaring engine. And more shell bursts implode the walls around us. Building after building is hit. Wall after wall collapses and homes are destroyed. It is all so very pointless. We go back into the street and cross over to the other side, falling back to yet another new position. That's how the fighting went on all day. I stop suddenly. I've had enough. I would like the earth to open up and swallow me. End quote. Helmut's description of urban combat in the outer rings of the capital is a perfect example of how much of the Battle of Berlin played out. A small group of Germans would resist Soviet advances. The Soviets would respond with massive force, and the Germans would withdraw one block to do the whole thing over again, each side losing men in the process, the Russians usually losing more. Now don't get me wrong, giant epic battles did take place at certain points in the city, especially at Spandau West, on the western end of the city, where thousands of Hitler youth were deconstructed in order to keep open a last corridor of escape for Berlin's garrison, a corridor which was rarely used. Nonetheless, heavy and continuous battle raged in Spandau because it was the last bastion of Axis forces working to stop a Soviet encirclement of the city. In addition, massive battles took place both in the Tiergarten, which is a large zoo and park similar to Central Park in New York City, and the downtown government district. The government district, where Hitler was located, would see some of the heaviest combat in human history. Still... Helmut's experience delaying the Russians was typical of most of the fighting in the suburbs and streets of Berlin. Late in the afternoon, Jean-Marie Quassi was ordered to fall back towards the center of Berlin. On the way, he stopped at a church, and this was the incredible scene which greeted him. On the square, there's a large church. As we have nothing special to do for the moment, I enter for a little while. The vault is pierced in several places, and you can see the gray sky through the holes. In the nave, a heap of rubble, broken pews, debris of all sorts, including a few corpses. In a corner, the wounded are lying, civilians and military too. Here between the thick walls, the din of the battle is muted. It's still there, but you can almost forget about it for a few minutes. I hear organ music. It's really the organ playing. It's not an illusion. It's not a Stalin organ. It's Bach. I walk towards the bottom of the church. Seated at the organ is a Wehrmacht officer, his head wrapped in bandages. I approach. From the expression on his face, I understand that the man is right now far removed from the battle that's being waged outside. Here two aspects of German culture come together. Bach's music and war, according to Clausewitz. But again, the war is going wrong. The military science and tactical genius of our generals, who have no equivalent in the opposing camp, 
did not hold up against the industrial might of Uncle Sam, who, well sheltered by an entire ocean, can work quietly at full performance. I find myself dreaming, but reality awaits me outside. There's a war to lose and not a moment to spare, end quote. April 26 was a grim day for Berlin's civilians, many of whom had already been traumatized or killed in the fighting. One historian details the wretched conditions of Berlin civilians with these lines, quote, Civilian casualties had been heavy already. Like Napoleonic infantry, the women standing in line for food simply closed ranks after a shell burst decimated a queue. Nobody dared lose their place in the line. Some claim that women just wiped the blood from their ration cards and stuck it out. There they stand like walls, noted one woman diarist. Those who not so long ago dashed into bunkers the moment three fighter planes were announced over central Germany. Women lined up for a handout of butter and dry sausage, while men emerged only to line up for an issue of schnapps liquor. It seemed to be symbolic. Women were concerned with the immediacy of survival, while men needed escape from the consequences of their war. The failure of Maine's water meant more dangerous lines. Women waited in line with pails and enameled jugs at their nearest street pump, listening to the constant metallic squeaking from the rusty joints of its handle. They found that they had changed under fire. Swear words and callous remarks, which they had never uttered before, now slipped out quite naturally. Over and over again during those days, one woman remembered, I've been noticing that not only my feelings, but those almost of all women towards men have changed. We feel sorry for them. They seem so pathetic and lacking in strength. The weekly sex. A kind of collective disappointment among women seems to be growing under the surface. The male-dominant Nazi world glorifying the strong man is tottering, and with it the myth of man as a gender. In earlier wars, men could claim the privilege of killing and being killed for the fatherland was theirs and theirs alone. Today we women too have a share. That has transformed us, emboldened us. Among the many defeats at the end of this war is the defeat of the male sex as a gender end. Quote. It wasn't just German men and women being killed in the streets of Berlin. It was ancient German values, gender roles, and deeply held beliefs. I mean patriarchal gender roles among Germanic peoples that were even older than Christianity itself. Now they were thrown down for generations, maybe forever. Here is a great disjunction in a people's culture. Here is where war intersects with sociology and psychology. Here is yet another strand of the ever-growing ribbon of feminism spreading throughout Western nations. The fact that modern war exposes women to death in a way that many, but not all, previous wars did not. No, on that April day in Berlin, it wasn't only the city's buildings that were being blown apart, but many of the capital's cherished beliefs were blown apart as well. One female eyewitness described her day in a war zone with these lines, quote, My fingers are shaking as I write this. Thirty minutes ago, we took a direct hit on the fifth floor. We're still breathing the dust from the plaster. I'm out of breath, having just raced down from my apartment in the attic. The place looks like a dump, full of scattered plaster and splinters and broken glass everywhere. Farewell, my fleeting bit of home. I hardly had a chance to even know you. For the moment, you've been rendered uninhabitable. A little before 10 a.m., a trunk-sized bomb landed on the roof of our building. A terrible jolt. There's screams everywhere. The concierge's wife staggers in, pale as a sheet, bracing herself against one of the support beams. Then came an 18-year-old girl leaning on her mother. Her hair was gray with plaster dust, completely tangled and covering her young face, which was streaked with trickles of blood. She's been hit while crossing the courtyard. Even the canary in its cage felt the general agitation zigzagging back and forth as it cheeped away, frightened out of its mind. After we find some supplies, a few of us sit on a sofa on the second floor. A gentle warmth is wafting through the broken windows, that and the smell of fire. Now and then we hear a voom, zoom, then a prolonged echo from the heavy anti-aircraft guns. And after that comes a ping, a short blow right to the eardrum heavy artillery, and then far away an occasional quack voom, quack voom, very fast, accompanied by howling and barking. I have no idea what that one is, but some people claim it's Katusha rockets. A few hours later, the Volkssturm are retreating, and German artillery is pulled up on our corner. The explosions rattle the basement as the two armies trade shots with one another sporadically through the night. End quote. That same day, civilians began to hear terrible stories about what had happened during the previous night. A butcher's daughter, who was just 14, had been shot when she resisted rape. 
One married woman had been gang-raped by soldiers, and consequently the whole family had decided to hang themselves. The parents died, but the young woman was cut down by a neighbor and survived. That night, 20 women and children huddled together in one sitting room, seeking safety in numbers. It wasn't long before they heard Russian voices, and suddenly the door burst open. The Russians dragged the young women from the room. The first thing the women still in the sitting room heard was screams, but not just any kind of screams. The young girls who were being raped were screaming the names of the other women in the room, calling for their help. The screams eventually dissolved into sobbing as the attacks continued. Mass rape was widespread and common. In East Prussia, it had been even worse. Meanwhile, the plight of the wounded continued to deteriorate across the city, which hadn't been good even before, if you remember from last month's show. One historian described it like this, quote, the few unevacuated hospitals which had remained in Berlin were so inundated with casualties that most newcomers were turned away. The situation was made even worse by the fact that wards were limited to the cellars. In the days of bombing only, staff had been able to get the patients downstairs when the sirens went off, but with constant artillery fire there was no warning. One woman who went to offer her services saw chaos and wax-like faces wreathed in blood-stained bandages. A French surgeon operating on fellow prisoners of war described how they had to work in a cellar on a wooden table almost without antiseptic and with the instruments scarcely even boiled. They had no water to wash their surgical clothes, and because of the virtual impossibility of obtaining official help, many wounded soldiers and civilians were tended to in the cellars of houses by mothers and girls." A boy named Hans Westfall describes the scenes of death that greeted his young eyes in the streets of Berlin. Quote, when we traveled in the car, my mother covered my eyes all the time. This was because there were dead deserters hanging from the lampposts. They hung there, their bodies frozen with rigor mortis, heavy and block-like, as if they were slowly undulating chunks of wood. Hitler had his death squads operating in the streets up to the very last second. Beside the railway station, there was a big bunker. We went to this bunker when the Russians began to shell the city. Before the Russians came, there was an SS unit defending the station. There was fierce fighting there. Down in the bunker, there were two rooms. The soldiers put us all together in one room. It was very tight. There were so many people there, it was hard to breathe, and the whole room was filled with the sweaty, humid warmth of all of us. In the next room, they put the wounded soldiers. I still have a memory I can never forget. It's the smell of burnt human flesh. A lot of them have been heavily burned in the fighting. They were brought there screaming in agony. I mean, just terrible screams. And there was only one door between the two rooms, and it was open and closed all the time. I could see the men writhing in agony beyond the open portal, moving like snakes. And this went on all afternoon. Then the SS officers ran off, leaving the heavily wounded behind. They were shouting, The Russians are coming! They're almost here! Then a little later, Russian soldiers came, but they left us alone, at first at least. That was in our bunker. But in my 14-year-old cousin's bunker, the Russians took her. She was missing for five days, but then they let her go. She had been gang-raped. I still remember the bruises on her arms, up and down, like giant freckles, just everywhere. But what was worse was the bruise on her little spirit. Before the mistreatment, she had smiled a lot. But after that day, she never smiled, never laughed, never played with her dolls. She was something beyond a woman, knowing the archaic hardships of our primordial ancestors when the entire tribe was wiped out and a few girls were used and abused for days on end that's the kind of pain she knew before the attack her happy life had been a deep blue sky where twittering bright colored birds played in the sun after those five days her spirit was a granite rock the war did that to all of us it robbed us of our childhood it it warped our personalities it, it humbled our entire nation's pride my cousin was a broken woman for the whole of her life and so is Deutschland. So is Deutschland. End quote. On April 26, a Soviet colonel named Sebelev took a few minutes to write a letter detailing his battle in the streets of Berlin. And this is what he wrote. Quote, Signalers and runners come and go constantly. We're moving towards the center of Berlin. Gunfire, smoke everywhere. Soldiers run from one building to another and creep through the courtyards very carefully. You have to. Germans were shooting at our tanks from windows and doors, but... Tank men adopted a clever tactic. 
They are moving not in the middle of the streets, but on the pavements, and some of them are shooting with cannons and machine guns at the right side of the street and others at the left side, and Germans are running away from windows and doors. In the courtyards of the houses, the soldiers from the support services are handing out food from vehicles to the city's population, which is starving. The Germans have a starved and long-suffering look. Berlin is not a beautiful city. It has narrow streets. There's barricades everywhere, broken trams and vehicles all over the place. The houses are empty because everybody's in their basements. End quote. The street fighting on April 26th and every day after that was apocalyptic. It was like a prophet had described a terrible destruction, and then the destruction had burst forth out of the pages of scripture and into tangible reality. Cornelius Ryan provides this overview of the terrible fighting, quote, one suburb fell almost instantly. Hitler youths and home guardsmen who tried to make a stand before the town hall were annihilated. The mayor hung out a white flag and then committed suicide. Pankow held out for two days. Another suburb held out for three. Small pockets of Germans fought tenaciously to the end, but there was often no consistent defense anywhere. The Soviets were pulling the defenders apart like a cinnamon roll. Street barricades were smashed like matchwood. Russian tanks moving fast blew up buildings rather than send soldiers in after snipers. The Red Army was wasting no time. Some obstacles, like tram cars and rock-filled wagons, were demolished by guns firing at point-blank range. Where more sturdy defenses were encountered, the Russians simply went around them. In Vilmersdorf, Soviet troops encountering resistance entered houses on either side of the block streets and blasted their way from cellar to cellar with bazookas. Then they emerged behind the Germans and wiped them out. Clusters of artillery raised the city blocks yard by yard, deconstructing the work of three generations in three days. As fast as areas were captured, the Russians rushed in the great formations of guns and Stalin organs they had used in previous battles. On the Tempelhof and Gatow airports, guns were lined up barrel to barrel. It was the same in other parts of the city. In the parks and open spaces, even in the apartment house gardens, lines of Stalin organs crowded main thoroughfares, pouring out a continuous stream of phosphorus shells that set whole areas ablaze. There were so many fires that there was no night, one homes guardman remembered. You could have read a newspaper if you had one. Dr. Willem Nolte... A chemist pressed into the Fire Protection Service saw Soviet artillery spotting planes directing barrages onto his workers as they tried to put out the fires. Hermann Hellreigel, recently drawn into the Folkstern, was lifted off his feet by a shell blast and thrown into a nearby crater. To Hellreigel's horror, he landed on top of three dead soldiers. The 58-year-old home guardsman, a former traveling salesman, scrambled out of the hole and sprinted for his home. Soldiers all over the city began to desert. One sergeant saw no reason to give his life for the Fuhrer. An accountant for the Abwehr, the German intelligence service, the man named Helmut Folk, had suddenly been given a rifle and put on guard duty. When he heard that his unit had been ordered to the government district near Hitler's bunker, Folk set off instead for his personal home. His family was not happy to see him. His uniform endangered them all. Folk took it off, changed into civilian's clothes, and hid the uniform. An hour later, the Russians overran the area and saved his life because they inadvertently protected him from Hitler's death squads. In the command post near the Frey Bridge, Private Willie Tam had heard something that made him decide to stay with his unit to the end. A lieutenant came in to report to Tam's captain, and over a cup of coffee and a glass of schnapps remarked, Just think! The infantrymen everywhere want to desert. Today three went absent without leave on me. Tam's captain looked at him. What'd you do? he asked. The lieutenant sipped his coffee and said, I shot him. What do you think I did? Marauding gangs of SS men roving the city in search of deserters were taking justice in their own hands. They were halting nearly everyone in uniform and checking identities and units. Any man suspected of bolting his company was summarily shot or was hanged from a tree or lamppost as an example to the others. One 16-year-old named Schultz, a member of the Hitler Youth, reported to his headquarters in a disused cinema. There, he saw a lanky, red-haired SS trooper with a rifle marching a man into the street. Schultz asked what was happening and was told that the man was a Wehrmacht sergeant who had been found wearing civilian clothes. With Schultz following along behind, the SS man marched the sergeant down a street. Suddenly, he gave the Wehrmacht soldier a violent shove. As the sergeant struggled to keep his balance, the SS man shot him in the back. 
That night, Schultz saw the red-haired SS man again. Along with other boys in his unit, Schultz was standing watch by a barricade when he saw a T-34 tank coming down the street. The tank was slowly turning its turret when it got a direct hit and blew up. The only survivor was immediately captured. In the Russians' pockets, the boys found photographs of key Berlin landmarks. At headquarters, the Red Army tanker was interrogated and then turned over to a man with a rifle. It was the same SS man. Again, he walked his prisoner outside, but this time he patted the Russian fraternally and motioned for him to go. The Russian grinned and started to leave, and the SS man shot him down, too, in the back like a dog. It then dawned on young Schultz that the lanky marksman was the headquarters official executioner. Everywhere now, Berlin's defenders were being forced into the ruins of the central government district. To slow down the Russians, 120 of the city's 248 bridges were blown. Many of the bridges had taken months to build. Blowing them up gained the defenders a few hours. End quote. All along the circular front, the Russians were pressing towards the government district where Hitler was screaming at his generals in the bunker. Meanwhile, the Waffen-SS and their Hitler Youth acolytes were doing everything they could to stop them. For the most part, the city defenders avoided street barricades. These were the first thing to be destroyed at the start of any firefight when the Soviets arrived. Zhukov, desiring speed more than anything else, had sent his tanks careening into the city. The Germans met this threat by posting riflemen and machine gunners in the upper floors of the street-facing buildings. This was because the tanks could not elevate their guns high enough to fire on the upper floors of the building. Then, from the cellars and the basements of surrounding houses, the defenders poured poured Panzerfaust rockets into the mechanized Russian tanks. The Panzerfaust was difficult to fire from above, and so the Germans were forced to ambush the tanks at extremely close ranges. The tactics were fairly effective. If the two sides had been evenly matched, the Germans probably would have won a strictly military fight, but this was no fair battle. There were over a million Russians bearing down on about 80,000 Germans. As tank losses mounted, the Soviets changed their tactics. A historian explains the change in Russian battlefield strategy like this, quote, The first new tactic was to cover each tank with submachine gunners who sprayed every window and hole ahead as the vehicle advanced. But there were so many soldiers clinging to the tank that it could hardly traverse its turret. But more and more they relied on heavy guns, especially 152mm and 203mm howitzers, to blast barricades in buildings over open sites. The 3rd Shock Army also used its anti-aircraft guns constantly against rooftops. Infantry tactics were based largely on Chukov's notes evolved since Stalingrad. He started from the precept that offensive operations carried out by major formations as if in normal battle conditions stand no chance of success. He rightly emphasized the need for careful reconnaissance, both the approach and the enemy's likely escape routes. Smoke or darkness should be used to cover the approach of infantry until they were the Within 30 meters of their objective, otherwise losses would be prohibitively high. The assault groups of six to eight men should be backed by reinforcement groups and then by reserve groups ready to deal with a counterattack. The assault groups, as in Stalingrad days, were to be armed with grenades, submachine guns, daggers, and sharpened spades to be used as axes in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. The reinforcement groups needed to be heavily armed with machine guns and anti-tank weapons. They had to have sappers equipped with explosives and pickaxes ready to blast from wall to wall between houses. The danger was that as soon as they opened a hole in the wall, a German soldier on the other side would throw a grenade through first. But most Red Army men soon found that Panzerfaust, abandoned by the Volkssturm, offered the best means of flank progress. The blast was enough to flatten anyone in the room beyond. While some of the assault groups made their way from house to house on the ground, others progressed along the rooftops, and others made their way from cellar to cellar to take the Panzerfaust ambushers in the side. Flamethrowers were used to terrible effect. Sappers also prepared sections of railway line with dynamite attached to it to act as shrapnel for the final attack. Chukov urged a ruthless tactic when house clearing. He would tell his men, Throw your grenade and follow up. You need speed, a sense of direction, great initiative, and stamina, because the unexpected will certainly happen. You will find yourself in a labyrinth of rooms and corridors, all full of danger. Too bad. Chuck a grenade at every corner. Go forward. Fire bursts of machine gun. Fire at any piece of ceiling which still remains. Never waste a moment. End quote. 
This was all very well for experienced troops, but many of the young officers who had graduated after short courses had no idea of how to train or to control their men in unfamiliar surroundings, and after the odor battle and the relentless 24-hour advance ordered by Zhukov, most of the Soviet frontline troops were simply exhausted. Tiredness slowed their reactions dangerously. Mortar fuses were sometimes set incorrectly, and the bomb exploded in the tube, while soldiers who tried to use German grenades often ended up dis- disabling themselves and their comrades, end quote. But I want you to realize this was the way the Russians conquered Berlin, house to house. A major problem was Soviet troops firing on their own men. So many different battle groups and units were operating in the same area in extreme conditions while suffering from extensive fatigue that mistakes often happen. Russian forces at the end of one street called down artillery strikes on their comrades two blocks away, destroying buildings and impaling their fellow countrymen with steel rebar and smashing their shoulders out of joint with chunks of falling concrete. Russian infantrymen sometimes fired on one another. The smoke and dust so fogged the air that you couldn't often tell who your own men were, let alone another unit 60 yards away. Meanwhile, in the south, the battle for Tempelhof Airport continued through most of April 26. When one Panzer Division counterattacked the Russians, there were so few German tanks left that they had to operate singly, supported by small groups of infantry and Hitler Youth armed with Panzerfoss. That night, the remaining defenders withdrew from the airport. Yet another avenue for retreat and resupply. The Germans had been getting some ammunition delivered by air, after all, was now cut off. One more thing I want you to remember is at all times, at all hours, artillery's raining death on the streets of Berlin. Sometimes the cannon were fired over open sites at point-blank range in order to destroy entire buildings, which presented heavy German resistance. So no matter what part of this battle I'm describing, just mentally insert artillery going off everywhere. See the cannon lined up in fields, belching and blurping like a machine in a Dr. Seuss picture book. The men manhandling shells, sweating profusely, political commissars with all the pettiness of true believers who know their only chance to avoid the front line themselves is to ruthlessly support communist ideals, screaming at the men, see in your mind screen, five Soviet soldiers, their broad backs and large hands, manhandling unyielding guns down wide streets. Now see them scream, PURE FIRE! Then a building 50 yards away trembles, shudders, and implodes. See them there working relentlessly, stumbling from the physical strain and the lack of rest, sometimes laughing, falling asleep while standing. The destruction was like the end of the Game of Thrones television series when Daenerys and her dragon spat flaming death all around the city at King's Landing. Just so, the thousands of mechanical Soviet artillery dragons spat death into the heart of Berlin. At the same time, General Wiedling was near Hitler's bunker setting up his last command post at an old army headquarters which had strong air raid shelters. You lost all sense of time down in the bunkers below the army headquarters just a few hundred yards away from the chancellery. The officers stumbled about their tasks running on coffee in delirium. After establishing his new headquarters, Wiedling personally made an inspection of key points in the city's defense. At the huge anti-aircraft control tower near the zoo, the artillery commander of Berlin told Wiedling he no longer had military communications with his forces and was forced to rely on civilian telephones in order to conduct operations. He also explained the supply of ammunition was dwindling dangerously. At this stage, the artillerymen weren't getting even one shell per gun resupplied by air each day. Everywhere Wiedling went, it was a similar story. From his observations and interviews, Wiedling realized the city's defenses had been penetrated in the west, southwest, and east. Progress by vehicle was so slow through the destroyed city that Wiedling actually got out and walked his rounds in order to make better time. That evening, Wiedling met with Hitler and explained the situation was militarily hopeless. He asked permission to try and break out of the city in order to link up with German forces still operating nearby. Hitler didn't want to hear it. He told the bewildered general, Your proposal is perfectly all right, but what is the point of it all? I have no intention of wandering around in the woods. I'm staying here and I will fall at the head of my troops. You, for your part, will carry on with the defense. End quote. Meanwhile, about 17 miles south of Berlin, the encircled German 9th Army was fighting its way west, desperately trying to reach General Vink 
and his 12th Army, who had made an attack eastward in order to provide a path for the 9th Army to escape along. Russian bombers were constantly hammering the encircled 9th Army. Much of the army was in a pine forest, and Soviet artillerymen deliberately burst shells into the tops of the pine trees, which sent shrapnel careening down into the tens of thousands of Germans massed below. The Germans themselves, lacking ammunition, could rarely respond to Russian artillery fire. All they could do was fight rear guard actions and push westward towards Vink's 12th Army and a moderate amount of safety. That afternoon, the fighting intensified. Anytime the Russians moved towards the city center where the government district was located, the fighting inevitably got heavy. And the afternoon of April 26 was a perfect example of this general pattern. Antony Bevor takes up the story like this, quote, during the withdrawal towards the center, Sector Z, the battle intensified. Whenever Germans managed to knock out a Soviet tank with a Panzerfaust, the local Soviet commander always tried to retaliate with a Katusha strike. But revenge with such an area weapon was akin to shooting hostages in response to a partisan attack. And one of the boys trying to knock out Soviet tanks with a Panzerfaust was Harry Schweitzer. In this excerpt from the story of his battle, Harry details what it was like to serve in a tank hunting team on the streets of Berlin. Quote, on April 26, 1945, volunteers were called for the tank destroyer teams, and many of my age group, including me, volunteered. We were quickly instructed and equipped for our new role. There were four men in a team, one with a Panzerfaust, one with a glass bottle containing a milky fluid which, when mixed with oxygen in the air, would cause a tank engine to stop, and two escorts armed with submachine guns to fire the enemy as soon as the crew bailed out. Our second lieutenant had some trees chopped down between the zoo bunker and the railway station to provide us with a good field of fire, and also had some anti-tank barriers erected at the station. A unit had paraded in front of the barrier. Why the person in charge had so badly misjudged the situation, I cannot say, but suddenly Russian aircraft appeared like lightning and started dropping shrapnel bombs, and many of the soldiers were wounded. We rushed to their aid, but had no stretchers to carry them on, so we used tabletops from a nearby abandoned restaurant. It was frightful. I helped carry a tabletop on which a soldier lay, whose leg had been ripped up to the knee. He spoke quite normally to us without complaining, but the pain must have been greater than we could ever imagine. The only occasion we went into action against a tank was catastrophic for both sides. We had to destroy a tank on a nearby corner whose gunfire was dominating the streets. We crept through the ruins and cellars like panthers until we could see the tank from a cellar window. A Russian with a slung rifle was standing in a doorway near the tank watching it fire. We debated whether to shoot the soldier or the tank first, deciding upon the tank. Comrade Hitzinger fired at the tank with a Panzerfaust from his cellar window and hit it, but at the same time he cried out with pain as he had not taken the back blast into account and was set on fire like a heretic being burned by an inquisitor. The Russian in the doorway had vanished. We attended to our comrade and put out the flames with our jackets. Then we took him back to the hospital in the bunker. I later found out he survived the war. Now only two members of our team were left. We were given orders to report to an SS unit, which commanded us to run to a specific doorway and fire on a Russian machine gun nest. Burned, reached the safety of the doorway too late, and was wounded in the lung. Now there was just me left. I now had had enough of this, and instead of reporting back to the SS unit, I returned to my proper unit in the zoo bunker." End quote. Another SS soldier was fighting in the streets of Berlin on April 26. He remembered the heavy fighting like this in his memoir, Twilight of the Gods. Quote, Cross and I had just left the street and put our feet on the first step of a cellar when suddenly the entire wall and roof collapsed all around us. A violent air pressure tore our helmets off when we were half buried in gravel and lumber. Cross got on his feet right away. There had been an explosion close behind, right among the vehicles. Cross was unhurt. I tried to crawl to my feet, but I failed. From the half-tracks on the street, cries and groans were heard and the sound of exploding ammunition, and down in the cellar, the women cried hysterically. Damn! What could all this mean? It was quite impossible for me to get to my feet. At last, Cross took my arm and helped me up. My uniform was torn to shreds and gray from limestone dust. My nice, soft officer's boots that I love were completely ripped. Staggering, I managed to get down the half-demolished stairs. It hurt a bit on my left thigh, and I touched the leg with my hand. It got quite wet. It was blood everywhere. And now the burning pain came. I was wounded. There was a large, wide-open hole all the way through the thigh. Out there, the mortar ammunition continued to explode. The cries got fewer and weaker. 
My comrades grabbed me around the waist, and with my arms over their shoulders, I hopped on one leg up the stairs over the pile of stones in front of the entrance. Our half-tracks looked like scrap metal. They were burning, and the crews lay spread here and there. The entire platoon of about twenty men had been annihilated. Explosions still came from our ammunition supply, but the cries had stopped. Supported by my good comrades, I limped along the house walls and into a cellar. My friend Walter gave me a bottle of schnapps, which I worked on as my compatriots examined my wound. I felt quite weak, and the blood was flowing steadily. It was a large wound caused by bomb splinters from a Soviet aircraft. I could have put my fingers into the wound. Walter put a cigarette between my lips, and I lay there puffing while Cross made some sort of bandage, which was very soon soaked wet with my blood. The alcohol and the weakness put me into a very pleasant mood. The tension was over, I thought, and it was nice to lie still like this and think of nothing. Just shut my mind off. It took quite a while until the men found a stretcher. During that time, the Russian artillery shot away half the house around us, and the building next to us collapsed completely, so that the civilians who had been sitting in its shelter had to hack their way out through the basement walls and into our basement. They ran hysterically hither and thither, and cried out every time whistling from a bomb or shell was heard from outside. Then someone came with a stretcher. It was not a peaceful or comfortable transport, I can tell you. Time after time, shells kept howling. So they had to run into the same doorway with me being carried on the stretcher, and where they heaved the stretcher around quite roughly and slammed me into the ground and against walls. I was not the only one on my way to the first aid station either. The wounded were everywhere. In a great storage cellar, I was laid on a table which was covered with blood. I got a couple of injections against tetanus, and a friendly soul put a nice bandage on with quick but gentle fingers. The wounded were lying tightly packed all over the floor, and the air was filled with cries, moans, and groaning wheezes that echoed against the vaulted ceiling. My men stayed until I was ready to be loaded into an ambulance. My comrades gathered around me to say goodbye. It was a tough moment. We had struggled together for a year, a long time in this war, and had been the backbone of a strong platoon. All joy and all misery we had shared equally and side by side went through hell on the eastern front. Now I was finished with this war, at least for the time being. But what lay ahead for these three? Were they going to be killed now in the final phase of the war, these magnificent men? There were no better mortar crewmen to be found. It was with such men that our platoon had managed to knock out a Russian tank with mortars. Their chance to get away alive was exceedingly small, and although they smiled at me as they now shook my hands in farewell, I could see the fear of what was waiting for them shine out of their eyes. I was almost ashamed to leave them. From my ambulance, I was driven all over the city center on April 26. You want to know what it looked like? I'll tell you. Wherever I looked, there were dead and smashed, corroded destroyed bodies in the streets, dismembered. Almost all of them were civilians. No one had the time to bury all these dead, and it already started to smell awful. The streets were covered with the remains of houses and burnout vehicles. End quote. Throughout the capital, a black smog hung in the air, choking the men. The air itself was often hot from all the fires, sucking the saliva out of your mouth like breathing in a sawdust-infused atmosphere. That's what Berlin looked like as the sun set. A city covered with dead and dying, dissected and deconstructed wherever you looked. At night, hundreds of buildings glowed orange as they combusted, sending fireflies of orange sparks continuously in the air. There was no real rest as the sun went down. Mortars and artillery continued to fire throughout the night and into the next morning. The fire from burning buildings threw flickering lights over the streets, exaggerating the shadows of the trees and the ruins as if they were coming to life. In the basements of the city, civilians cuddled close to one another. Soldiers tried to find sleep. Surgeons worked around the clock, cutting and poking into bleeding flesh in horrible conditions. It was and is one of the worst nights of misery in the long, sad parade of misery comprising human history. And that's where we'll pick up next month's podcast. And that's another one in the books for me. In next month's show, we're going to pick up exactly where we left off in bloody street fighting, house to house, death to death, tragedy to tragedy. And I can tell you, it's been hard getting this episode to you. My kids were playing around in the bathroom and, you know, there's a little bit of PVC pipe that sticks out from your toilet to your wall. Well, my kids knocked a painting off my wall onto the PVC pipe, which promptly broke Niagara Falls. Water everywhere, bleeding into the bunker down here, destroying everything. I was running for my life, and well, to shut off the water, there's a crawl space I had to go into. Well, I had to get the lid off the crawl space and get in there and 
turn it off. And when I was doing it, I was running around trying to get towels to clean up the water, you know. So I'm running around, and my son was supposed to clean the garage. Well, he left his broom just laying on the floor. So I tripped over it, careened onto the floor. I thought I broke my wrist. It turned out it was just really bad sprain. On top of that, I'm crazy busy at work. I'm trying to please my wife. My kids are assaulting me bodily and financially. It's been crazy. I love my kids, don't get me wrong. I love my family more than anything. But it was just really difficult getting this show to you guys this week. So I hope you appreciate it, or this month I should say. Anyways, I appreciate you listening. I really do. I don't take it for granted. Timeliness is very important to me, as you can tell, because this show got out on time. It was a lot of work coming to you to get it to you. A lot of problems this week. I'm sure you had a lot of problems, too. Well, you know what? You know what helps me when I'm having problems? I'm not going to lie about it. A cold one. So let's pop open one together. And until next time, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and I'm wishing you good weather and good times with good people. Bye.